in the little village I lived in, I was the kid who played the trumpet. So I was asked to do the last post each year on Remembrance Sunday. What I took from meeting these veterans, this is when you saw and felt almost physically the suffering they'd gone through and and the way in which they had committed their lives and the lives of the friends and the many people they lost to a greater good. This moment had a deep impact on me, which created in me a deep sense of the value of the liberty that we possess and our need to defend it and our need not to forget history, but to be deeply grateful for the security and the peace uh, and the freedom and the liberty that we have today. Across history, people have struggled to make sense of what's going on in the world. Today, major risks have come roaring back. The war in Ukraine, tensions in Asia, and the state of the economy. In this episode of This Moment Matters, from Marsh McLennan, we talk with someone who's devoted his life to studying the world's risks. My guest today is Nick Robson, who leads Marsh's global political risk practice. Welcome to This Moment Matters. I'm Eric Gustafson. As a youth in the UK, Nick Robson took an interest in the late 1970s crisis in British politics and began reading his father's newspapers. As a teenager in the 1980s, he closely tracked issues as the UK's relations with Europe drew closer, only to later help clients, as a professional, grapple with issues when the country left through Brexit. His career has been an extension of a personal passion to understand what's happening in the world. In the early 90s, the Cold War ended, the wall came down, and Francis Fukuyama famously declared the end of history. Fast forward 30 years, and it certainly doesn't feel that way. We just took a holiday from history rather than witnessing its end. So I started the interview by asking Nick how he's thinking about the world today and how he puts words to it. It's really interesting to try and grapple with this sense of what the world's mood is and and where we're going, because there are so many threads, and the threads seem, for the most part, to be distinct, and of course they're not. They are all linked, but it's drawing the links together that's the challenge. More broadly speaking, the world's mood today is febrile. You know, we're in a period of great uncertainty. People feel unsure, for the most part, in countries where we felt confident in, in our freedoms, we feel less confident at the moment. Politics, especially in the Western world, has become very polarized. And the forces that stand against some of the things that we have stood for, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, room to develop with limited government restriction, these sorts of things that we've enjoyed, the countries which challenge those things have multiplied and feel more vocal and feel more powerful. And that speaks to this world of greater uncertainty, a greater sense of volatility. And that, of course, is also fed by a media, which has lost, I think, the sense of media responsibility that we believed existed in the past, where the media would, on the one hand, of course, want to 
broadcast stories and print stories that got attention and had commercial value. But at the same time, there was a sense of responsibility in the media that there were things that perhaps you should hold back on or consider carefully before you print it. Today, if it gets attention, it'll be printed. And the worst of that, of course, is that it feeds back into politics. So you get this negative feedback loop in politics where very often what's in the media and the public perception is leading the politics rather than the politics leading the dialogue in the media. So in thinking about the world's mood, have you found a word that kind of gives a name to it? Yeah, the word was found for us by the Collins English Dictionary recently when they uh, announced that one of the words of the last 12 months was permacrisis, a new word for the last 12 months, which has gone into the Collins English Dictionary. And that word, of course, is supposed to capture the idea that we're living in a constant series of crises and it reflects the COVID and lockdown crises we've recently been emerging from. And in some countries, of course, like China, are only just now emerging from followed by the Russia-Ukraine crisis, followed by the energy crisis, followed by the food crisis, and this concept of a permanent series of crises. There's no shortage of items in the world that are impacting how businesses and their employees are working. How are you advising our clients doing business around issues like the war in Ukraine or increased tensions in Asia? Um as Russia went into the Ukraine, there was a period of intense engagement with clients across all sorts of different types of peril as we try to assess the implications both of the physical impact on the ground in the Ukraine and then the consequential impact of sanctions. And, and of course, this was an enormously complex issue, particularly the sanctions to work with. The rate at which new sanctions were applied was rapid. They were applied by different authorities, although for many organizations, they would have been subject to sanctions from multiple authorities. So our clients were trying to navigate that circumstance too. This addressed issues ranging from clients who've had assets which they've had to abandon or which have been damaged by war and political risk insurance policies and political violence policies have responded to those types of scenario. Clients who familiarly and regularly traded with Russia and were unable to receive payments from their customers in Russia for goods and services they'd supplied being presented with credit risks. And that has resulted also in some credit risk insurance losses that we've navigated our way through. As we've come through this period of crisis with the Ukraine, which sadly continues with a high level of intensity, there have been you know, different points of evolution that the world has watched and the insurance market has supported where it can. The most public of those was the agreement that was reached for some shipments of grain to be taken from Ukraine and exported. For those shipments to be able to sail, they required insurance, but that insurance was required at a time when there was technically a war environment and, and the insurance would not normally have been available in the immediate area. As Russia agreed that point in time back in July to allow those shipments to proceed, the insurance market worked to create special facilities and Marsh was at the forefront of that advice. There's been further complications with the adequacy of insurance for the ships to pass through Turkish waters and another area where Marsh has been heavily involved in providing advice and support for clients. So a lot of different things, just a few examples there, but those are some of the things that we've been dealing with in Ukraine and Russia and will continue to deal with as long as these circumstances persist. So none of this feels particularly normal, but how close to normalcy have the insurance arrangements made things for clients? Is it still cumbersome or is it a solvable challenge with creative thinking and access to good insurance markets? Well, subject always to the impact of regulation, which of course has 
something that the entire insurance market seeks to adhere to and work with. And, and so subject to understanding the regulatory impact of any client demand and being confident that we can work within the regulatory environment, creative minds in the insurance market have managed to deliver solutions where there's been opportunities to do so. But it's a long way from normal. And for our clients, the experience is complex and time consuming, even when the insurance market is responding quickly. And that complexity and time is driven more by the regulatory environment than the commercial environment in the insurance market. So looking beyond the shipping and the grain issue, how might the geopolitical tensions in the east of Europe play out over the next year or two? Um, Obviously, NATO has been strengthened through this process. Western unity has absolutely been also strengthened. What are the maybe the downsides of this geopolitical scenario that we have to address? From a broader perspective, uh, NATO has once again been the entity which has kept the peace in Europe. And there's a narrative in Europe that it's the EU that has kept the peace. And it's not a wholly honest representation of what's happened. The EU has kept peace within the members of the EU. But when issues have occurred on the borders of the EU, and there's been two extremely notable ones, Yugoslavia and then the series of events with Russia dating back to the Crimea and coming through to the current year in Ukraine, The EU has been impotent and it's been NATO that has had to step in uh, together with other global forces. So NATO's importance has been underlined. And that's not a small thing if you recall that within recent times, very recent times, leaders in Europe have talked about creating an EU army. And you remember Macron talked about NATO being brain dead. These things are far from true. The role and significance of NATO in keeping the peace today and into the future has been underlined by this conflict. There is also a narrative that it was the EU's push east that provoked Putin's taking that action. I think it's very important that we don't buy into that narrative. Putin made his own decisions in his own time frame. The EU may or may not have been wise with hindsight, but Putin has shown himself to be, as most leaders of his nature have been in the past, to be subject only to their own decisions. The excuses can be made, but they shouldn't really be heeded. And as for the subject of Western unity, this is a particularly interesting one. It's difficult to imagine or remember Germany restricted the flying over its territory of any defense items to support Ukraine. And so this Western unity, it's fantastic in many ways that it's been revealed because it's created a strong counterpoint both to Russia and to some of the challenges that have been identified with regard to our relationship with China at a moment when it was well needed. But it has also identified just how fragile that unity is and can be. And we've seen it again with some of the comments that have been made by European leaders with regard to the future of the dialogue with Russia about the Ukraine. I think we can take from these issues that some of our multilateral institutions are far more important than we sometimes give them credit for. And NATO is certainly one of those, given the criticism it's received But Western unity is still a long way from being embedded again in the way it was in that period of time you began this discussion with post the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it's important that we regain and focus on the points that we can align with rather than the points that divide us. And that's going to be a particular challenge in the years ahead as we deal with complexity. But it's also a particular challenge for business and our clients because it's from this type of issue that the volatility and uncertainty that our clients deal with emerges. Western unity that you spoke of, the need for it, no doubt it creates fault lines in Europe, as you've described and we're seeing. Are those fault lines confined to Europe or do they expand globally? 
Yeah, they do expand globally, sadly, and they're certainly a part of the challenge that we need to confront in other parts of the world. I realize as I talk about this that some of the vocabulary I use, Western unity, is sort of out of date because it's not purely in the West. It's those countries globally which um, run uh, democratic systems that have relatively open market environments and reasonably high levels of freedom. So you you would incorporate Japan and Korea, for example, in that group of countries uh, right alongside Australia, Western Europe, North America, and a number of other territories through the world, including South America, the Middle East and Africa. The lack of unity, the lack of confidence in the West and, and in those countries allied with the West And the divergence of opinions has certainly fed into the strengthening in relative terms of China. And and even in the midst of this recent period of time, um, you may have uh, taken note that the Chancellor of Germany recently made quite a strong comment about not uh, decoupling from China and and maintaining uh, strong Chinese relationships. Not that, not that I'm suggesting we shouldn't maintain strong Chinese relationships. I think it's important for the world that we do. But it was running very much counter to the narrative uh, that many other leaders uh, were giving at the time, which is that we need to adjust the relationship with China, that it's been unbalanced, and that several different things over recent years have together created a degree of tension today that needs to be managed. Those several things are not as straightforward as some of the commentators would have us believe, which was the Chinese alignment with Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and and the differences that exposed, particularly with the West. But actually, of course, that the first sign of the complexity of the relationship with China and the challenge for Western companies and Western business was the impact of the COVID restrictions and lockdowns and the huge dependency that so much of the world had developed on China and how that impacted the supply chains. Now, from a resilience perspective, the level of dependence on one territory and a territory where, you know, our relationships are somewhat complex was not a smart move if you were considering this from a pure risk management perspective. Of course, you should work with China. Of course, we should trade with China. But you should also have some distribution in order to make sure that your supply chains are resilient. And COVID exposed that as as an issue for the Western world, particularly, but not just the Western world, uh, right across Asia as well. As the COVID complications kind of made themselves manifest at the same time, we saw increased tensions between China and Taiwan. And so that notion of like reshoring or friendshoring supply chains very much came into the forefront of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So it was already a trend that companies recognized the level of dependence built upon China in the supply chains over the last 20 years was very high and that there was a a genuine risk management need to reconsider that level of dependence. And then, of course, the tensions with Taiwan and China's alignment with Russia brought that to the fore. China to date has been able to maintain a very bullish stance on international trade Even in the face of low levels of intellectual property security in China and high entry barriers to ownership and operation in China for foreign companies, the West has been so dependent on China that there's been no alignment in challenging some of the things that haven't worked with the China relationship. And then along comes the alignment with Russia and at the same time, China exerting its stated rights with regard to Taiwan. This, again, I think has exposed some interesting challenges. I believe that China felt able to do that partly because it absolutely believes in its authority over Taiwan, 
and partly because it believed that the Western world would not risk its dependence upon the relationship with China by challenging China in a way that was too difficult, too aggressive. It hasn't quite worked out like that. And whilst the Speaker of the House to Taiwan was not an official state visit, it highlighted just how concerned China was about the Western position and what that might do with regard to the relationship with Taiwan and caused a considerable heightening of the rhetoric. Our own view is that when we talk to our clients, it's clear that there is a desire on the one hand to continue to trade effectively and smartly with China, and on the other hand, to make sure supply chains don't have such a significant dependency on one territory. At the same time, companies are looking at, in particular, the challenges of the transition to a lower carbon economy. And in that regard, reducing carbon in supply chains by shortening those supply chains is another feature of what's going through corporate planning when they look at China risk and the supply chain dependencies. So these two issues are out there at the same time as the broader political issue and the desire to, from a political perspective, to moderate the dependency on China. And what about the long term, Nick? Do you think companies are leaving or are they, is this just a, a moment where we're taking a pause because of the tensions, because of COVID? When you combine the impact or the realization of the supply chain dependency on China, which we knew about before, but we saw as a risk really properly for the first time after COVID. When you put that together with this other driving issue around transition and reducing carbon emissions in supply chains, and then you add into that the highly sensitive issue around the politics, what you see is corporations saying, long term, of course, we need to be in China. It's an important market. It's an important manufacturing base. And we'll continue to trade and to operate in China as so long as we're allowed to do so. On the other hand, given the politics, the risks that politics could lead to sanctions and disruption to business, given the other issues that I've already described, it's sensible that we diversify our dependencies in supply chains into other territories as well as China. Long-term businesses would like uh, to continue to trade in China and probably will, unless we do have a more acute political de development. But the rate at which they invest in China will probably reduce and the rate at which they invest in other parts of the supply chain in other uh, geographic locations will increase. And so over time, the dependence on China will moderate. And what risks do you see outside of China? I mean, if those supply chains are diversifying to places like India or South America, perhaps those are not necessarily completely placid locations. No, you're absolutely right. And so one of the big challenges with this is being coined in the media is the process of decoupling. I think that's probably a little bit too strong a phrase. But nonetheless, if we use it, one of the consequences of the concept of decoupling with China is that you're taking on, at the same time as you're seeking to moderate risk in one location, you're taking on new risk. And when you invest in a territory, you know, one of the first and primary risks you have to understand is your property rights. You know, how secure is your investment? Can you enforce your rights if you're confronted with a problem, whether it's a commercial or political problem? And in many countries, the concept and the property rights is understood, but the ability to enforce your property rights is limited. And then you have to deal with other forms of disruption. Many countries present significant political risk themselves. And if they don't present political risks themselves, the relationships they have with other territories and other regions could create other forms of political disruption. And then, of course, there is the risk of new customers and new suppliers 
you know, if you're putting capital in uh, to suppliers for future deliveries, or if you're delivering goods to customers with future payments due, you take significant credit and performance risks with new entities that you're not familiar with in an environment where not only that the credit risk issues may be different, and you can theoretically address those through analysis, but the cultural issues around payment and performance and security and relationships are different as well. For sure, the experience and need to develop supply chains in other territories brings with it a whole new area of, of risk complexity. And, and we often talk about supply chains being restacked, restacking where you're buying and supplying from and to. And there is complexity and the need for understanding of country risk, credit risk and performance risk in that process. So, Nick, you've described the tensions between China and Taiwan. Do you see them escalating further? And, and if they do, what might the impact be to China, setting aside the potential impact to Taiwan? This is the big question. And of course, it's enormously politically sensitive. Um, you need to understand what it is that would drive China to do that and what its priorities are and where its risks lie. One of the lessons I first learned many years ago when I was um, chairing a political risk panel, uh, this was an ongoing analysis team, and we had some fantastic China experts from China on that panel. And one of the things we learned was the most important thing to the Chinese Communist Party is the survival of the Chinese Communist Party. It sounds like such a, a simple statement, and it is a simple statement, but when you get under the skin of what it means, it really does have a significant influence on what you should reasonably expect China to do in different circumstances. Today, now in China, we might think the biggest risk for the Chinese authorities is, um, for example, their perception of American support for Taiwan or their perception of growing strength across the Pacific, which doesn't involve China, or security agreements between certain countries globally to counter China's strength. But the reality is that those are not the biggest risks to the Chinese Communist Party. The biggest risks to the Chinese Communist Party are their own population, their own survival. So in China, you have this extraordinarily large population. And whilst we have seen significant generation of wealth that has trickled into several hundred million people, the size of China's population means that there are at least a billion people in China who are still in a state that we would classify as impoverished. For the Chinese Communist Party, so long as that population can be supported and subsidized and jobs can be created and food can be distributed and opportunity can gradually trickle through society, they have a relative degree of security. But when a population of that size is discontent, when a population of that size is given reason to rise up, that is the biggest threat to the Chinese Communist Party. You've seen that play out in the protests about the lockdowns. And Given the strength that Xi Jinping had reinforced through his confirmation of his third term as leader, many people expected there to be a very strong, possibly violent clampdown on those protests. But there was clearly an interesting moment of reflection in China that these protests could gain momentum and that a violent clampdown could lead to actually accelerating that momentum. And instead, a decision was taken quite to the surprise of many commentators outside China, that in fact, there'd been some concession and China was quickly going to move away from the zero COVID policy and free up society. So I think it's a very nice illustration of, of the priority. So when you come to thinking about Taiwan, if China were to attack Taiwan, 
that would create a very strong reaction from the West. Um, whilst there could be some level of physical impact, I'm not sure that it's realistic to expect America or any other territory to actually go to war with China over Taiwan. Uh, yes, maybe to supply Taiwan with support, but not necessarily to go to war. But what the West would do would issue sanctions against China. And the impact of those sanctions on China at this time, given its diminished economic strength as a consequence of the lockdowns, would be dramatic. And it would be relatively quick. And the way in which that would impact the Chinese Communist Party's ability to uh, fund and support its population would be equally dramatic. The point I make is that for some time, we have felt the dependence we have built outside China on China has given China the upper hand. But in fact, in today's scenario, whilst there is some truth that China does have a strong position, the reality that the West is willing and could unify to close out China could have a much more devastating impact for the Chinese Communist Party and their authority as a consequence of the economic impact on their country and their ability to support and subsidize their very large population. For those reasons, it's not, of course, inconceivable, but I think it's a very, very low likelihood. Ukraine, China, the state of the economy. Obviously, we can only scratch the surface of these topics. Each of them fills volume after volume. But our goal here is to provide a starting point. Even though the economy is fraught with risk, the fallout of the regional banking crisis being a prime example, Nick outlined cause for optimism. Amid all of the concern, there is an upside. Supply chain stress has definitely reduced and very significantly as China's opened up. If you look at emerging and mid-tier countries, they are, for the most part, very much more resilient to economic stress than they were in past periods of crisis. A couple of data points you can look at in this respect are foreign exchange reserves in terms of the amount of FX that emerging territories hold to cover months of imports. You know, that's a typical point of economic stress when there's a global macroeconomic crisis, and it's a reference to and a proxy for a sovereign credit risk. But if you look at what's happened and taking, I don't know, a, a reference point of, say, the Philippines. In 1997, in the Asian financial crisis, the Philippines had less than two months worth of FX reserves in terms of months of imports. They now have nearly five, nearly twice as resilient in terms of the period of time over which they can fund import costs with their foreign exchange reserves compared to where they were in the last time they faced what was a very significant crisis in their region. So that's just one data point. Actually, it's similarly true for almost every country apart from Argentina and Turkey in terms of the emerging world. And another similar uh, kind of a line reference is the amount of foreign debt that countries hold as a percentage of total debt. If you go back to the Asia financial crisis, again, as a reference point, 97, 98, the amount of foreign currency debt that a country like Thailand had at that time was very, very substantial. But in 2022, it's about 1% or 2% of the government debt and about 98% is in local currency. So that's a much more sustainable, much more resilient position in a macroeconomic crisis situation. And again, a very significant number of the world's important growth economies, you know, like Brazil, India, uh, South Africa, have a much reduced dependency on government debt in foreign 
currency, much much reduced. So their resilience is greater. Um, so those are a few things to be optimistic about. And then right alongside those things, there are four at the moment very big drivers of demand that are going to progress with or without the challenges of the current geopolitics. Um, and those four big drivers of demand are delayed infrastructure, the kind of core infrastructure that the world wasn't able to progress with as it normally would have done during the COVID lockdown periods. And the estimates for what's needed from one or two sources, I was looking at a G20 analysis done by Oxford Economics, just to keep on top of the current infrastructure needs. And this does have a little bit of overlap with transition carbon reduction infrastructure, but it's just core infrastructure requirements. They estimate the world has got to spend about $80 trillion by 2040. And even when you start annualizing that, that's a vast amount of capital for ongoing infrastructure needs and a significant amount of which is needed in the short term because it was delayed by COVID lockdowns. Another obvious area is energy security and food security as a consequence of the circumstances with Russia. That is having positive impact on demand from regions like Latin America and the Caribbean and on some domestic market supplies where those energy needs and food needs need to be responded to in the short term and is creating investment and trade. Another area, the third area I would refer to is defence. Defence spending clearly has got a mixed history in many people's minds. But right now, I think most of us see a necessary level of defence as a moral good in light of how we've seen Putin behave towards the Ukraine. And depending upon who you talk to and which country it is, that the largely democratic world is increasing spending by between about 25 and up to 100% in the course of the next few years as people move to a 2 to 3% of GDP defence spend. And so defence supply chains are very, very long and they extend well beyond the frontline defence manufacturers that people will, be, will have heard of. They go into all sorts of engineering companies, technology companies, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a big stimulant for economic growth up and down uh, quite complex supply chains. Last, by no means least, is what needs to be spent from a climate finance perspective to transition to a lower carbon economy. A lot of people are predominantly focused on the target goals uh, for transition that people have signed up to for 2050. But actually, there are intermediate goals for 2030, which is just around the corner, right? You know, we're less than seven years from 2030. There's some interesting analysis the UN Environment Programme did here. And just for what they call climate finance needs by 2030, there is an additional up to $2.8 trillion across sectors from power systems to transport to industry to buildings to lower emission fuels like uh, hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel, ammonia. And then, of course, there's agricultural sectors as well. So these four big drivers, infrastructure and delayed infrastructure from COVID, energy and food security, defence, and then the really significant needs around transition finance, transition to a lower carbon economy, which involves both infrastructure and a huge range of other things across almost every sector. These things are huge demand drivers that need to be responded to. These are reasons to be optimistic because these things will drive positive economic engagement and, of course, collectively will contribute to a stronger, more resilient world. Nick Robson is global leader of Marsh's credit specialties practice and manages our political risk solutions. 
he spoke to us from London. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in other topics in the series on climate change, cyber threats, or disaster resilience, all of which can be found on our website, marshmclennan.com. This is This Moment Matters. I'm Eric Gustafson. <laughs>